Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be continuing our chat about Gregor McGregor, the uh, the Scottish con man we discussed last week, or we began our discussion last week anyway. Um, all the chicanery that he got up to this time, focusing on uh, the greatest con that he ever pulled, the Poyet scheme. This is very much what he's noticed as his lasting legacy these days. For those who missed last week, uh, look, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. No, I'm not going to do a recap. Go and bloody listen to it. It's a podcast. It's not a radio show that you can miss. You know, the re- go and listen to it. The, the, catch up. The rest of us are awake. Go on, pause it. Off you go. Bloody hell. Like, are they gone? They're gone. Bloody some people. I'll tell you what, absolute clown fiesta. Oh, oh oops, sorry, they're back. Uh, excellent. Well, thank you. Good, good. Well done. Uh, we can continue. So, as everyone knows by now, thankfully, Gregor McGregor, uh, he was a Scottish bloke who he went around, went around working as a uh, as an officer, first in the British Army and then in various Latin, Latin American revolutionary armies, you know, Venezuela, whatever else. And uh, while generally a pretty middling officer, his proudest achievements were, of course, the capture of three separate Spanish towns, only to more or less abandon them when the Spanish came back to recapture them, leaving all of his mates behind each time. So during his time, uh, you know, adventuring around the other side of the Atlantic like this. He also, but he was obsessed, ab- absolutely obsessed with his own reputation and the way that people saw, you know, whether people sort of viewed him and saw him. And I've just realised now I actually am doing a recap of last week. So, yeah, sorry for wasting that 40 minutes of the people who went back and listened to it. Anyway, um, uh, but he, he was so obsessed with his own image that he would he would lie about his achievements, his, con- his conquests, his titles, everything, basically. Um, and he went so far as to, you remember, he went so far as to make up his own chivalric order, the, the Order of the Green Cross. So it's safe to say he had his head a long way up his own ass, and, uh, but he also seemed to have a pretty effortless magnetism and, and a real charisma. Uh, you know, as a bloke, because he, he he took you know not one or two, but actually three dismal failures as this you know cowardly commanding officer before the stories caught up with him, and he and he started running out of friends, and that as as everyone knows by now, that is where we left the story last week. McGregor uh, he had come back from his disastrous attempt to capture and hold the town of Rio de la Hacha. Uh, he lost hundreds and hundreds of men that he you know that he was in charge of there, and uh, everyone now from Jamaica to Venezuela is shunning this bloke, and this is where McGregor t- uh, disappears from history entirely, completely disappears off the history books from October. October 1819 to April 1820. We just don't have any idea where this bloke was or what he got up to. But we do know what happened, however, as soon as he re-emerges in a big way like this. And that's where we're going to be having a chat today because of what he got up to after he re-emerged in April 1820, the Poyet scheme. So... April 1820, out of nowhere, McGregor, he appears. He appears again in an area that uh, is, is rather worryingly named the Mosquito Kingdom. Um, now, I don't get bitten by mosquitoes. I'm very lucky. I don't know. My, my blood must not, not, not taste all that all that good. But, you know, my mum, my brother, my, you know, my girlfriend, everyone, everyone's getting eat, eaten alive by mosquitoes whenever I go outside. And I'm just there laughing at them all like that, having a great time. But even so, even with my immunity to mosquitoes, I still wouldn't be too excited to visit a place called the Mosquito Kingdom. I really would not. I mean, first of all, it should be called the Mosquito Queendom, as it's the female mosquitoes who are, you know, getting out and about and biting. Well, actually, they're not biting people. Technically speaking, they're using their, you know, proboscises or proboscis or whatever to you know to to pierce your skin so technically technically not a bite whatever uh what am i talking about this isn't half-assed zoology bites are fine we'll call it a bite um but seriously what the hell's going on with mosquitoes anyway 
They kill hundreds of thousands of people every year because they transmit diseases. They're such good um, disease vectors. They're such effective, so, you know, because they're transferring blood here, there, and everywhere like that. They also only live for about a, you know about a week, maybe two weeks, and and spend most of their lives making other lives, the lives of other animals, pure misery. I don't know. Maybe that's why they like to kill other animals because they're all you know pissed off that they get such a short innings themselves. Anyway, mosquitoes, as far as I'm, I'm concerned, they can go. L- long story short, they suck both figuratively and literally. And uh, I don't think I'd like too much to visit a mosquito kingdom or queen or any other territory that's overseen by mosquito-based governmental systems. I would say, although I suppose it would be pretty sweet to see a giant mosquito in a throne, you know, wearing a crown. Queen Squito, twenty two hundred eighty third of her name, sipping on a a goblet of the blood of her sworn foes. Anyway, McGregor. He emerges back into the history books in April 1820, as I've said three times now, in the Mosquito Kingdom, which straddled the modern-day border between Nicaragua and Honduras. There's a, an area in Nicaragua still referred to as the Mosquito Coast, although back in McGregor's day, the kingdom was a long, thin strip of coastline that went all the way uh, along the Nicaraguan uh, coastline there from uh, from Costa Rica all the way up north over the Honduran border. Now, the kingdom at this stage, it's a British protectorate with local kings that are crowned to prevent the Spanish from treating it as unclaimed land, although de jure, it's under the control of the Spanish because the Spanish had huge influence, huge influence that in, the, in that region anyway, but the British have a technical, they technically lay claim to it. Um, now, one of the blokes that the British have crowned as a king in order to, you know, try to legitimise their claim to this area uh, is a fellow with a very, very regal name of King George Frederick Augustus. And it's actually with this bloke that the story of the Poyer scheme begins, because on the 29th of April, 1820, King George Frederick Augustus, he sells our mate Gregor McGregor over 32,000 square kilometres of land. That is bigger than Belgium, or for any revered US listeners for which there are only two countries, America and everyone else, uh, this is about the size of Maryland. So this is a big, you know, sort of tract of land for one bloke to all of a sudden be in charge of. But Gregor McGregor, he's been hanging out in the Mosquito Kingdom and he manages to purchase uh, this, this great big area off of, the, off of the, the King of the Mosquitoes there. Now, obviously, uh, well, I guess not obviously, but, you know, we actually don't know too much about this transaction. Apparently, McGregor paid for it with jewels and booze and other stuff like that. But we, what we can guess is why he might have bought it, actually, because, he, you know, he's obsessed with grandeur and titles, and he names this new dominion of his Poyer after the locals that already live there, but then dubs himself the Kazik of Poyer, which was a Spanish-American word that loosely meant prince, right? So buying Poyer basically gave him a, a, another great big fancy title and another way to con people into thinking that he's, you know, this great big knob. So absolutely perfect. He loves this whole plan. He's a big fan of it because obviously it makes him look all, all grand and large and in charge. Now, by all accounts, it's a proper tropical paradise, the area that he's bought, you know, bloody beautiful beaches, palm trees, all the rest of it, white sand, blue water, loving it, absolutely fantastic. Now, it's very nice to look at, you know, but unfortunately, uh, the whole place is... uh, extremely inappropriate for any kind of, you know, sort of vis-a-vis, you know, boring stuff like agriculture and habitability. But, you know, no worries. looks pretty spiff on a postcard. And that's that's the main thing here. And McGregor, he's got very, very big plans for this new tropical paradise that he's coming to here, this, you know, more or less completely undeveloped area. Uh, you know, he's got very big plans for it. Don't even worry about it. He's got, uh, he's got big things on the horizon coming. So, New land, new title, Kazik McGregor. He heads back to the old country, back to the UK. Oh, sorry, not the UK at this stage. Great Britain at this stage. It's not the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland just yet. Just Great Britain. Um, he gets back to the old country, back to Great Britain to uh, to run his next bit of gear there. He's, uh, the con is on. Now, despite his name being 
mud throughout the, the Caribbean, through Latin America because of the stuff that he's done at Rio de la Hacha and whatever else. Um, uh, and also, despite Michael Rafter, one of the blokes who had served under him during, you know, his, these remarkable failures he had, uh, you know, in the last episode, Michael Rafter actually wrote a book about uh, McGregor and how much of an idiot he was and how much of a, you know, how terrible he was as, as a commander, as an officer. When he sails back into London, McGregor, he's marching around like he owns the place and he is immediately welcomed into high, into higher society because he's walking around with these big, you know, these 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 medals and these, uh, these <laughs> most of the ones that he's just made up and these titles and everything else and all of a sudden everyone's wanting to be his best mate he talks a huge game about his exploits in latin america and uh, of course he's remembered for his um association with the diehards of the 57th foot foot regiment and so people are bloody loving him this foreign you know this foreign potentate coming in this foreign bloke coming in walking around strutting around all these medals and everything else like that all these war stories and fancy titles and and of course he's he's the hottest social property he's off at fancy dinners he's eating you know eating them whore there's the what is it the whores de oeuvres you know he's talking out his bum about his adventures on the other side of the world and everyone is lapping it up and of course the main thing he's focusing on he's going on and on and on about his new position as the Kazik of Poirier how brilliant in his little kingdom is and all the rest of it and people are falling for it hook line and sinker they're completely taken in now to be fair to be fair it is not that implausible that a new country and a new government uh, could have sprung up overnight like this in Latin America, given how you know politically unstable the region was with shifting colonial powers all the time, that sort of thing. So it was actually it was believable enough that this bloke had come back and you know fought his way through through the the colonial wars of or the wars for independence back in uh, you know over there in Latin America, and then have been rewarded with basically his own kingdom. That's it's not completely out of the question. So people aren't that stupid for having believed him. But any way you slice it, you know whether you believe him you don't believe him whether you think that people are being taken in whatever else he was the hottest social property of the season he is hanging out with everyone in london all the way up to the lord mayor of london right he, he's spinning this yarn about why he's back in london he's back you know being a, as an official guest of king george the fourth uh, the coronation of the, the the king there on behalf of the nation of poirier um as well as to find people who want to move there or invest their money in it and he's using all of these uh, these higher society of shindigs i guess they probably wouldn't call them shindigs would they um, to get to get the rich and the famous on board, and would you believe it? Again, they are just they are falling over themselves to to hand him money. They're falling for his rubbish like you wouldn't believe. And there, there are a few, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm not trying to take anything away from McGregor as a con artist. He's obviously very, very good at his trade here. But there are a couple of other factors that, that, that sort of weighed in on his, his immediate success in, far, in, in parting these falls from their money here. Because at the time, and he chose his moment exceptionally well. At the time, he's done his homework. He, he, he's, he's figured out that now is a, is a very good time to go around and have all these little pitch meetings that he was having for people in London. And, and, and as a result of this, as, because of his preparedness, because of the work that he put in and because of the timing of his of this whole con, McGregor went around convincing people to invest, you know, invest or, or even move to what was at this stage effectively a made-up country. And I said that he chose his moment well, and it's very true, because in 1821, at the time he was going around canvassing people for cash, the Napoleonic Wars were over, the British economy was firing on all cylinders, and, and there were very low domestic interest rates in Britain itself. People were looking for more lucrative uh, way, you know, more more uh, investments with, a, with potentially a higher level of return. So they're looking for, to, for foreign investments. They're looking for other ways to other places to put their money. So the atmosphere was ripe to take these rich people to the cleaners and, and, and take all their money off them. But how, you might ask, how did you how do you, how do you convince that these that all these people that Poirier even existed as a country, let alone, you know, had an established government and a prosperous prosperous population? Well, no half measures. 
with our mate McGregor here. Remember, there's hardly anyone living in Poirier. McGregor is going around talking about it like it's this new tropical paradise with towns and ports and a government and economy and all the rest of it. You may have heard of famous con artists and the scams they've got away with over the years, taking advantage of, you know, the gullible, the foolish, or, or just the unlucky. But McGregor, with the Poirier scheme, kicked off what has to be one of the most incredible and brazen confidence tricks in human history by essentially inventing an entire country with documentation to prove it and convincing people to chuck their money or even themselves at it. He did this by publishing a 355-page book that presented itself as a guidebook to the territory of Poyer and was filled with the most unbelievable nonsense. Actually, actually, no, that's that's the thing. It That was the problem. It wasn't unbelievable nonsense. It was totally believable nonsense, right? A lot of the book had huge big bits uh, ripped out of it uh, from other books about the nearby area. So so stuff that was written very much in the style and, and was very much believable about about that whole area of, you know, that we now call Honduras, uh, Nicaragua or whatever else like that. So, so there's a lot of stuff in there that, that uh, you know, you're going to believe. But this book apart from all that, was completely made up. He, he pulled it out of his ass almost entirely, all the bits that he wrote here, because it went on and on and on about how excellent the climate was, how fertile the earth was, how bountiful the wildlife was, all the rest of it there like that. This book, it talked about the completely made-up capital of Poyer, which was St. Joseph. Um, it talked about it being a bustling town of 200, oh, sorry, 200,000, 20,000 people with palaces, mansions, banks, cathedrals, opera houses, theatres, all the rest of it. But my favourite bit about this guidebook, you know, it's got it's got you know a guide to the town. It's got all the all the information about you know potential agriculture, hunting, fishing, whatever else, or like that. But my favourite bit about it, you'd think this would be enough to make people sort of sit up and, and go whoa 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 hold on a second what? Because he claimed Gregor McGregor claimed that the rivers and streams in Poyet were so rich with gold that little bits of gold littered the bottoms of their banks. McGregor is touting this book filled with all of its knowledge, you know, saying to people, oh, you know, you can go and you can, if you go and hunting for one day, it'll feed your family for a week. You can just go and, 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 and scrape your hand along the bottom of a river and you'll come up with a fistful of gold. He's going around talking this huge game about this made up country. And uh, the thing is, he makes it very believable because he doesn't stop there. He's not only printed, at great expense, printed out this fake guidebook. He's also printed all sorts of other bits and pieces to support his, support his rubbish, pamphlets, leaflets, even land certificates that he's trying to sell to people saying, you know, if you invest, you'll, you'll get this land. It's gonna, you're going to have a huge rate of return on it, whatever else like that. There is so much detail. It's so convincing, all the stuff that he's carting about. You know, he, he explains the parliamentary system in detail. There's a fictional constitution. He talks about the trading and commerce laws over there. McGregor has it all covered. Last week, we talked about how he spent ages sitting around designing his fictional uh, chivalric order, the Order of the Green Cross. Remember that with, you know, drawings and diagrams and everything. This time, and I mean... This guy must be, he must have been so into doing this sort of stuff because this time he's invented an entire country. He's illustrated, he's got an illustration of the, the Poirier coat of arms. He draws the uh, the uniforms that the armies are wearing. Uh, he makes up this entire system of nobility and, and this awards, this honour system, all the rest of it. He's like a bloody DM making up a, an entire campaign setting just by himself. Unbelievable. But the most unbelievable thing is 
It worked. It all bloody worked. The fact that he had so much detail about this place, and because, you know, again, I, I talked about the costs involved in, involved in printing books and certificates and all the rest of it, people are taking it taken in by it. They think, well, this bloke's not going to waste his money on something that doesn't exist like this. So he, he, people are, again, falling over themselves to, to hand him money. And it's not just people. It's not just people. He's raking it in from these rich people who are, again, you know, tripping over themselves to invest in Poyer. He also cons a major London bank, a bank, into loaning him £200,000. In today's terms, that is £25 million. All of it based on a fake government in a fake country on the other side of the Atlantic. And this bank is also handing him out or this, you know, this massive loan here like that, just on, on his word, more or less, and these books that he's waving in their faces. No one wanted to miss out on investing in Poirier. And McGregor is absolutely loving it. He is strutting about like the cock of the walk with his invented titles and all the rest of it, basking in the warm glow of the spotlight. I want to change the, the tone of the show. I mean, we don't get we don't get serious very often here in Half Ass History, but just just for a second, yeah, I want to I want to sort of have a bit of a tonal shift because I think we tend to look on people like McGregor as, as cheeky rascals who you know who, who who get away with it. People who fly in the face of authority, manage to do people over, you know, in the process generate a story like this one, entertaining and funny, and you know puts a smile on your face. But there is a darker side to this sort of thing as well. I mean, you know. You know, months and months ago, we talked about Ned Kelly on the show, and he's revered in Australia as a larrikin, you know, a bloke who stuck it to the man and, and showed him who was boss. But, you know, we forget that he was an actual literal, you know, robber and murderer as well. And, you know, that sort of stuff tends to, you know, be overlooked in a, in a nice romantic story like this one. And McGregor, the story of McGregor is no exception. While, you know, no one's getting too upset about him fleecing rich people, there is another side of this con which we're going to explore now that was... Uh, Perhaps a little less forgivable because it's easy. It's very easy to overlook someone like McGregor or you know whomever else uh, tricking wealthy people into giving up their cash. We don't tend to lose sleep over you know rich people getting done like this, and and, and rightly so. But McGregor's con, however, it went from being a, a sort of a you know quote unquote harmless one to one that was essentially murderous uh, when he started to looking for started looking for emigrants uh, to Poirier. This country didn't exist. Let's not forget, this country does not exist. It is it is a a, a sparsely inhabited, uh, completely undeveloped area of land that that has no real prospects for supporting settlement. But but Poirier is the the basis of McGregor's scheme to go around and, and and trick people into packing up their lives now and sailing over there to start anew, all based on utterly false promises about what life would be like to live there. You know, so what what he does at this stage to try to to get people to move there is he goes back up to Scotland. He moves back up to his uh, his native Scotland as he guesses that people there would be more likely to believe him as he was Scottish himself. And I don't think this, even today, I don't think this is an unreasonable thing uh, thing to think. Scott Scottish people are very proud of themselves and they're very proud of their country. And I think that you know they're very proud of their of, of Scots uh, who go out and do well in in the in the in the in the large big wide world. There, I was about to say the real world. Sorry to all my Scottish listeners. Um, and so you know when someone who's made it big comes back to Scotland, uh, you know people can be very proud. Can be listened to. 
what this what, what this bloke has got to say. So he's cutting about in Glasgow and Edinburgh. He's rounding up people who are interested in moving to this, you know, supposed tropical paradise. And if you'll remember, remember the Darien scheme from episode 50 a couple of weeks ago when Scotland tried and failed to set up a colony in Central America? McGregor is going about telling everyone how this is a new chance for Scotland to right that wrong and establish Poyet as essentially a Scottish run or a Scottish influence territory. And people are clamouring to sign up. More and more people are signing up to sail over there. And the con has become more and more attractive to invest, attractive to investors because now, if they had any doubts about the potential success of this venture, they're thinking again after seeing hundreds and hundreds of people line up to, you know, to pile aboard these immigrant ships. So after McGregor has 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 sorted out what he wants to do with the uh, you know with with sending these immigrants over the other side of the world, he's, he's he loads up two ships to the brim with hundreds and hundreds of poor souls, and he sees them off from Scotland to Poyet in in September and October in eighteen twenty two. And look, I don't know what's going through his head at this stage. And you know, we've we've sort of characterised this bloke as a bit you know as again a bit of a bit of a rogue, bit of a lovable cheeky rascal here. But he was sending these people to their deaths, and I don't know what he was thinking when he did it. McGregor, he was there to see these ships leave. He turned up with the freshly printed Poyet dollars for which people, again, scrambled to change their actual real British money for. They, 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 they're feeling so lucky that they're going to turn up with this freshly minted money ready to spend it in the, you know, in the city of, uh, in the town of St. Joseph there. The second ship, it left with such so much pomp and circumstance, so much, such a fanfare. It left with a broadside cannon salute and proudly hoisted the, hoist the flag of Poyet before leaving Edinburgh. Now, the ships, they made it across the Atlantic safely, very uneventful journeys, you know, thankfully for all on board, but that all changed once they arrived. The first one arrived in November 1822, and then the second arrived in 1823 in March, and the emigrants were shocked to find neither hide nor hair of this great nation of Poye, all the big talk from the guidebook, all of it is, of course, false. They find that, very, they find that out very, very soon. The magnificent city of St. Joseph is nowhere, nowhere to be seen, and there are no rivers running with any gold or anything else like that. So it's safe to say they've been, uh, they've been sold a, you know, a false bill of goods here. It's, it's not looking good for, the, for the, you know, these new uh, Poye immigrants here. Nonetheless, nonetheless, however, they dutifully, they exit the ships, they begin to try to set up shop, they reason that there must have been some kind of mistake, navigational, whatever else like that, and that the government of Poyer will, will soon locate them because obviously they know that they're coming. Uh, the, uh, the settlers, they send search parties inland, they're looking for any kind of, you know, settlement or anything else like that, but of course there's nothing to be found. Well, actually, that's not quite true. There, there are a few things to be found. One search party runs into some locals. Uh, who, after hearing them ask about any towns or settlements nearby, they take them to uh, uh, the abandoned and overgrown ruins of a, of a quickly aborted settlement that was, you know, from decades and decades and decades ago. And uh, you know, after after these explorers come across a you know a graveyard and a couple of ruined buildings, they realise well we we you know we've probably been done here. They go back to the commander of the expedition, a bloke whose name is Hector Hall, and uh, Hall figures it out. He goes, well, yeah, okay, this th- we've we've been we've been diddled. We've it, it's been a diddling, uh, a classic diddling here from uh, from from McGregor, but. Hall, I think, quite wisely decides not to share this with the rest of the settlers because, I mean, at this stage, I didn't say this, the other ships have sailed off. They're, they're, they're basically stuck there. They're trapped. They've got no way to leave. And so going and, you know, spreading this story amongst the settlers would have would have been, I think, a terrible idea, inducing panic and whatever else they're like that. So instead, what Hall does, he, he tries to figure out a way to, to, to save the people under his under his charge. And what he does is he makes an effort to try to cac- uh, to, to contact the, uh, get in touch with the, the Mosquito Kingdom, right? He knows that they at least might be of some help. They've got some connection to the outside world there. 
But the rest of the settlers, not knowing how, how dire their straits are, they go about their business. They're cheerfully unaware of the fact they're being done. They're convinced that it's all just a big mix-up and it'll all end, up, it'll all end happily enough, uh, or, that, or that someone else has, has stuffed things up. It's definitely not McGregor's fault. He's a lovely chap, and he's definitely he's not the one, uh, he's not the one to blame. Hall, however, unfortunately has no luck with the Mosquito Kingdom. King George Frederick Augustus didn't know anything about the nation of Poyet, and uh, when he returns, when Hall returns to him, he's just got no good news to share, and the Mosquito Kingdom aren't too interested. So, as I say, these two other ships, they've nicked off. They're stuck there, but the good thing is they've unloaded all the supplies. They've got doctors, they've got medicine, and so they're not in a, not in a totally desperate position as as they're you know setting up shop and trying to trying to establish a new settlement. But again, it's not exactly what they signed up for. And even with all the optimism, all with you know everything else like that, the cracks begin to show sooner or later when the rainy season arrives. And when when the rainy season arrives, disease comes with it: malaria, yellow fever, all sorts of tropical diseases start to spread throughout the settlers. And then tragically, people start to die. And in May 1823, Hall heads off to the Mosquito King again to ask for aid because of how desperate the situation is is here. He's got people dropping like flies. Unfortunately, everyone is sick. You know, the the settlement is starting to fall apart. This nascent settlement they're putting together is starting to fall apart. But while Hall is away, a ship arrives. A ship just happened to go past where the settlers were. It's carrying the chief magistrate of Belize, a bloke whose name is Marshall Bennett. He's off to visit the Mosquito King. And he is shocked to discover this little settlement wasting away with these abandoned settlers in the middle of nowhere. Ten people had already lost their lives to disease and one, unfortunately, to suicide. And heaps more were were sick as anything thanks to these diseases that uh, that were rife in, in the settlement. So Bennett, he comes aboard, he comes ashore, and he tells them in no uncertain terms that there is no such thing as Poyer, there is no Kazik thereof, and that they were all going to die unless they left and came back with him to a safer part of the world, back to Belize. So while the settlers are debating what to do in the next couple of days, Hall arrives back from his voyage to the Mosquito Kingdom, and he, and he brings back with him the King of the Mosquitoes himself. He brings back old mate King George Frederick Augustus, and he is hopping mad, I can tell you. When he's now realised what is going on, on on his territory, don't forget this, he he tells all the settlers that to clear off, clear off quick bloody smart, he doesn't want him there on his land. He says, yes, look, I sold a stack of land to McGregor, but I never made him a Kazik, I never gave him sovereignty over it, I never relinquished my sovereignty over this land, it's still mine as you know i'm still your king here so you've got two choices mate as you, you can either swear fealty you can either become a, a, a loyal citizen of the mosquito kingdom or because you know i definitely didn't give mcgregor permission to start reselling it so you don't have any claim to this if and if you're not going to swear allegiance to me you can get back on your ship and you can get out of here you know he's, he's telling basically all of the settlers they they're, they're illegal immigrants they have no right to be there and they've got to bugger off right here right now unless they swear allegiance to you know, and become part of the mosquito kingdom now I don't know about you. I don't know about you, but if I were angrily told to uh, to swear allegiance to the king of the mosquitoes, I absolutely would not be doing it. I would be packing my bags and getting it. I'd be moving out of town. So, uh, and again, most of the the settlers they make that decision. They almost all of them pack up and get ready to go with Chief Magistrate Bennett. Now Bennett, he has to make three trips there and back, there and back to pick them all up. Which is, I have to say, it's bloody good of him. Um, and he deposits all of the settlers that wanted to or are able to come back to Belize. Now, around 40 of them stayed behind, and, and unfortunately, most of them, uh, they didn't go because they were too sick and too weak to make the voyage. So very unfortunate for them there. And uh, what's more unfortunate is is for, for those of them who did make it back to Belize, a lot of them, the story didn't get any better. The conditions in Belize weren't weren't much more favourable uh, for, for, for good health than there were in Poyet, and, and the disease diseases again ripped through all of these weakened settlers, and, and many of them die, uh, most of them, in fact. And, 
And this is where we see, I think, in, in the cold, clear light of day, the consequences of McGregor's actions. And I think it's fair enough to, you know, to let him let him get away with a cheeky con, separating rich people from their money. We're not going to come too, down too hard on, on, on someone like that, especially when it happened, you know, years and years and years ago, and it's given us a good laugh. But still... What he did here in sending these people to this made-up country that was not prepared to uh, to support the life of these settlers there like that, it, it is a very, very, very grim thing to have done indeed. And 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 you know, it's it's not. It, it means that I don't know. It, it's much more difficult for to forgive him for sending hundreds of settlers, you know, across the oceans to it to a horrible death far from home. So we'll keep that in our minds as we continue to talk about McGregor here. Anyway. The British representatives in Belize, they immediately send word back to Britain to tell them what has happened. And in doing so, they actually make it possible for the Royal Navy to intercept five of the seven more ships that McGregor was getting ready to send back across the Atlantic. Two of them still make their way off, but the the the, the British, the Royal Navy, is able to chase down the other five and turn them around, tell them, look, you are, this is, you're on a fool's errand here. This is not what you think it is. So they come back home and the people there are safe. Now, the two ships that had already left, uh, they actually avoided being abandoned Poye, luckily. One ship made it all the way to Poye, and after seeing the state of the abandoned settlement and what had happened there, they very quickly realized, well, okay, this is not a good idea. <laughs> we are going to go back to Belize. And, and, and hang out there, see what's happened instead. And the second ship didn't actually make it any further than Belize before finding out the truth. So from there, all of these settlers, all of the people who had been conned or, or sent over there like that, um, they either go back home, they stay in Belize and, 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 and set up shop there, or, or maybe in, in Honduras as well. But a lot of them actually ended up emigrating to the US. So they took definitely took the scenic route, but uh, ultimately for the second round of settlers there, uh, you know, it's not too much of a tragedy, luckily, there like that. But... What happened to McGregor while all of this is going on? A very good question, one we're going to come to right now. He remained behind in Britain initially. He's rolling in cash. He's still organising more ships and more investors for Poye. Now, it, it's again, I, did, I, I, I don't know what is going through his head at this stage, but a, a very famous biographer of, uh, of McGregor, uh, a historian named Sinclair, uh, suggested that, that McGregor really earnestly believed in what he was doing and, and wasn't just trying to con people out of his money. He really did think that people were going to be able to set up a nation over in Poye. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But when the chickens start coming home to roost for McGregor here, he realises that he might be in a bit of trouble. Word has reached Britain of the total failure of the settlers in Poye and, and the truth you know, the truth has dawned on all those involved with McGregor that they've been swindled. So towards the end of 1823, McGregor realises that he is going to have to start to, you know, he's going to have to make himself scarce and he starts to make secret plans to do just that. Up until this point, he'd been uh, full steam ahead with the Poyer scheme. He's still trying to get people involved and, uh, you know, organise more ships to be sent over, as I said, all sorts of stuff like that. But when he hears that a group of survivors are coming back from Belize, he decides, yep, okay, probably time to make myself scarce, get out, get out of here, I reckon. So when the survivors arrive back in London on the, on the 12th of October, 1823, they find that McGregor has skipped town. He's told everyone that he was uh, heading back to or heading over to Italy for the, for the health of his wife there, but he actually secretly went to Paris instead, right? But here's the best part. Here's the funniest part. When the survivors get back, you know, we've got, we've got McGregor fleeing across onto the continent to try to hide from the, the wrath of these settlers. But when they get back and when they're asked what happened to them, guess who they blame for it all? They don't blame McGregor. Nope, not at all. He gets away with it scot-free. They blame Hector Hall, the commander of the expedition, one of the commanders who had been off trying to save their skins, you know, going and, 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 and treating with the uh, with the Mosquito King. They, they accuse him. They claim that he was the one who had conned McGregor. 
They said that he'd embezzled money and had given them the wrong directions. He'd been deliberately trying to run the settlement into the ground for, to line his pockets there like that. Here's what uh, some of the returned settlers said. Uh, they, they swore in an affidavit. This is what they said after they came back. They said this. <clears throat> we believe that Sir Gregor McGregor has been worse used by Colonel Hall and his other agents than was ever a man before. And that had they done their duty by Sir Gregor and by us, things would have turned out very differently at Poyer. So McGregor, he cannot believe his luck. He cannot believe his luck at this get out of jail free card. And immediately he starts singing in chorus with these returned settlers. He goes around talking about embezzlement and fraud and what he'd suspected and how he'd been ripped off and taken advantage of and how all the rich merchants in Belize were in, you know, in working in concert with Hall. They were trying to sabotage Poyer as it threatened their profits in the region, all this sort of stuff. He's suing newspapers who are claiming that Poyer doesn't exist. He's denying all wrongdoing and, and, and generally just being a bit of a dickhead about it. He is and incredibly, unbelievably, after doubling down on this lie, he gets away with it. And what happens next is absolutely astounding. I've already said, I've already told you that he's traveled to Paris, right? And once he's there, once this whole thing with the returned settlers emerges, do you know what he starts to do in Paris? He runs back exactly the same con, now trying to trick the French into investing in and traveling to Poyer. He has learnt from his mistakes, however, and this time he distances himself from the con by, by uh, working indirectly, uh, doing all of his business through a French company, a French sailing company or, or you know, a, a French uh, overseas colony, a colonization company there like that, that would do all the, uh, the actual settling itself rather than directly managing uh, the new rounds of immigration himself. Again, giving, him, giving himself plenty of distance, giving himself plenty of plausible deniability. And once again, it seems like everything is going to fall into place for McGregor as the money starts rolling in again and as more and more immigrants line up to be part of this venture once again. The company goes as far as preparing a ship to leave, gathering immigrants together, but it is here at long, long last that McGregor hits a snag because the French government, after doing a little bit of investigation, a little bit of homework about this whole Poyer system, right, they have all these people come to them asking for passports so they can leave, so they can emigrate from France over to there to Poyer. And the French government, the authorities, they refuse to issue passports to these emigrants who want to leave, as the government has never heard of Poyer, doesn't believe it exists, and is not going to give its citizens permission to leave. They order the police to investigate this whole Poyer business much, much, uh, you know, much more in-depth, much more uh, vigorously. And from there, the threads begin to unravel pretty bloody quickly. I can tell you this. The French authorities, they realise that this McGregor fellow is a walking colostomy bag. He is that full of crap. And order his arrest along with his associates who are over there in France. And so in September 1825, two of McGregor's colleagues are arrested while he, of course, manages to escape. He goes into hiding. Another associate of his flees as well into the Netherlands. But this doesn't last long uh, because uh, McGregor is tracked down and he's arrested in December where he and his associates, they are charged with a laundry list of fraud-based crimes. Now, after being locked up, McGregor tries everything to get himself out of jail. He first he first tries to make public pleas for aid, saying he's being arrested for no reason in contravention of his human rights. He doesn't know what he's supposed to have done, and that doesn't work. So he tries a different angle. He says, look, I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm a big deal. Don't you know this? I'm the Kazika Poye. There's going to be trouble if, uh, as uh, what he described himself as, as one of the founders of independence in the new world, if I'm not released quick smart, there's going to be big trouble, and uh, that doesn't work either. So then... 
rather neatly, he uh, he just tries to, to uh, claim that he has uh, diplomatic immunity as the leader of a foreign nation. And uh, needless to say, that doesn't work either with the French. Uh, none of it impresses them all that much, and uh, they ignore everything that he's got to say. They want to bring him to trial. They want to bring, bring him to trial and make him answer for, the, for what he's been doing here. But unfortunately for them, this other associate that has fled France to, in the Netherlands has taken with him all of the documentation, all of the evidence that they need to make a case against McGregor. Now, they're trying to extradite him. The French are trying to extradite him from the Netherlands, but it's not working. And so McGregor, he realises that he's got a real opportunity here. And now we're about to come to a bit of ridiculous good luck that this bloke had, because he says now to the French authorities, all right, you know what? Obviously, something's gone wrong. Obviously, there's been some kind of a mistake. If there's been a con, if there's been any kind of fraud, I know nothing about it. But I'll tell you who does. It's this bloke who ran off to the Netherlands with all the evidence. I want to cooperate. I want to help with your investigation. Uh, you know, I, I had no idea that the bloke in the Netherlands, he was in charge, he was in charge of everything. And, and I think I've been conned as well, is what McGregor says. Uh, by this whole Poyer thing. So, you know, let me help with this investigation. So while he's spinning this incredible yarn to the French authorities about, you know, about the whole, how the whole thing supposedly went, he wrote this, uh, he wrote this big, long backstory, you know, that, that completely exonerates him, talking about how he'd got involved with the mistakes he'd made or what he suspected about being conned and all this other stuff like that. Completely made up it was, right? Uh, and, and it scapegoats this guy who's safe over there in the Netherlands entirely. And because of this, right, because the French don't have the evidence to link him to all the conspiracies to defraud people, they can't prove that he was the one behind it all. And because of this guy that's hiding off in the Netherlands, McGregor has the the perfect way to get himself out of this. And McGregor's assistance to the French, quote-unquote assistance, along with this meticulous backstory that he's crafted, if you'll believe it, all of this results in a full acquittal for McGregor. The judges even praise him for being so cooperative and helpful during the investigation. And in July 1826, he walks out of the courtroom a free man. He has gotten away with it completely. Now, you would you would think that that would be enough for old mate Gregor McGregor and his ridiculous poise scheme. You would think, wow, okay, once bitten, twice shy. I am done with this. It was a close shave, but I managed to get out of it. I've had enough. Of course not. Of course not. Of course Gregor McGregor isn't finished. No, 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 no. He leaves France as quick as he can, which is a wise move on his part, and he returns instead to London, where the whole Poyer thing has sort of settled down quite considerably since he was last there. And it is there back in London that one last time he tries to get things going again, attempting to sell land and take out loans and all the rest of it, again, all in the name of Poyer. However, the third time was not the charm for McGregor, and all of his efforts to restart the Poyer scheme are pretty lacklustre failures, luckily for everyone involved this time around. You know, much like sort of when you hear the words multi-level marketing these days, you know that it's not a good idea to get involved or talk to people who are involved with it. You know, Even if you don't know 100% why it's not a good idea and what exactly the con is, People now, by now, they knew that the, the word Poyer was a, it was a danger zone. They wanted to stay a long way away from it. They'd figured out it was too good to be true and that McGregor, uh, you know, was obviously talking at his mum. And as a result, he never really made any progress the third time around. And in fact, actually, this was quite a funny as well. In fact, by now, McGregor isn't the only one who's going around trying to swindle people uh, by selling land in Poyer. A number of copycat fraudsters who, is, who have never been to Poyer, never heard of it, never actually been there themselves, a number of, the, number of these other fraudsters, are, 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 you know, they're... They're purporting to be representatives Poyer and setting up offices to sell land and all that sort of stuff like that. So talk about being a victim of your own success. You've got other people trying to run your con like that. So that's when you know you've uh, you've made it. Anyway, eventually, 
McGregor realizes he's not, you know, he's not going to make any more money out of this uh, this whole Poirier thing, and so he moves back to Edinburgh, where he stays uh, for a number of relatively quiet years. It has to be said, he's put the whole con behind him there like that. After having got away with it, which is quite quite astonishing, really, he gets away with it. He moves back to Edinburgh and lives there quite quietly up in Scotland for for a number of years, until. The death of his wife, Josefa, in uh, in 1838, and uh, he actually sells up completely after uh, after he's buried her, sells everything that he owns there in Scotland, and he leaves Scotland behind forever. He never returns. At the age of 52, he sails back across the Atlantic to Venezuela, hoping for better fortune back in Latin America. He's got one more con to pull before he hangs up his boots. And, uh, you know... He gets on the ship, he sails across with a heart full of optimism, hoping that things are going to be better on the other side of the Atlantic, and wouldn't you know it, of course they are. He finds the success that he was hoping for on the other side there in Venezuela because Simon Bolivar, I mean, you, let's, let's not forget actually, sorry, Simon Bolivar had threatened to hang him if he ever set foot in South America again. Bolivar, who was obviously in charge of the Venezuelan Revolution at one point, he's turned around and said, mate, if you ever come back here, I'm going to hang you, right? But luckily for our mate, well, I shouldn't say our mate, luckily, luckily for McGregor, uh, Bolivar died eight years ago. And, uh, you know, despite this lingering death threat from Bolivar, when McGregor arrives back in, in Caracas and, you know, obviously in, in classic McGregor style, walks in there, you know, walks in like he owns the place. He's got all his, his military uh, uniform, his, his, his medals on, all the rest of it there like that. He struts in like he's, the again, the, the, big, the big head cheese. He manages to talk his way back into his old position as a high-ranking army officer, since Bolivar's death eight years previous, McGregor's reputation as a you know as a revolutionary war hero has recovered a fair bit. You know, there's no mention of Rio de la Hacha, there's no mention of of, of Portobello and all the other you know, horrendous failures that he had, or anything else that he did that was terrible like that. And so he's seen as this star-studded war hero there, like that. And this is enough. Not not only to get him a, a, a very comfortable uh, war pen- or a pension there, you know, as a, a little, you know, retirement pension there like that. He also gets back pay as a member of the Venezuelan Revolutionary Army. He's got people like the Venezuelan Defence Minister, even the President, vouching for him as a hero of the revolution, as both of them had been around when he'd been fighting for the for the Venezuelans two decades ago. So he is rubbing shoulders with the rich, powerful and famous there in Venezuela and absolutely loving life after, again, having talked his way into it after years and years have passed since he's done, he's lifted a finger for the Venezuelans. So after everything... Gregor McGregor, he got a happily ever after. Whether he deserved it or not remains to be, uh, you know, we can debate that until the cows come home, but he certainly got it. Living as He lived as a celebrated, as a respected Venezuelan citizen on a divisional general's pension until his death on the 4th of December, 1845, at the age of 58. McGregor got a full military funeral with the Venezuelan president and 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 the military commanders of the country marching behind his you know the, the the coffin this massive big funeral procession that went through the city and you would have to think that McGregor would have been pretty bloody happy with that as for his lasting legacy today quite apart from his incredible life story well that probably fell short of where McGregor would have been, would have liked to be honest because his name is completely absent from the uh, the McGregor family cemetery that's uh, near Loch Catron here in Scotland, 
And as for Poirier itself, the uh, you know the part of Honduras that that McGregor dressed up as this pretend country and talked a big, spent most of his, his later career selling to the broad you know the wider public back there in Britain and even over there in France. So, but even to this day, that area known as Poirier at one stage, it remains undeveloped and completely untouched. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Gregor McGregor. And uh, I certainly hope you enjoyed it. It was a long one, but I'd like to think it was a good one. We certainly had a couple of laughs doing there as well. Although, I don't know, man. The whole the whole sending people to their deaths thing, it's just, it makes it difficult for me to, you know, sell this guy again as, as this rascal, as this rogue, because he really, he did do a fair bit of bloody harm as well. So I don't think we should lose sight of that. Anyway... Well, regardless of whether you look at it, you know, how you look at this bloke, that is his story, and I do hope you enjoyed hearing about it. Anyway, we're going to close out the show as usual. N- normal boring housekeeeping announcements. Halfhousehistory.net, your place to go to find out about the show. There's back uh, old, old episodes there as well like that. You can get in touch with the show if you want to If you want to email in to me. Uh, there's, a, there's a little contact form you can uh, follow there, and as well as links to subscribe on iTunes, on Spotify, and uh, on Apple Podcasts. No, Apple, what is it? Android Podcasts as well there like that. So plenty of ways to get across the show every week. And uh, thank you to everyone who gets in touch. And a special thank you, of course, to those supporting me on Patreon. I've got a couple of new Patreon members who've just signed up recently. And, and I, I can't say, once again, I always say this, I can't say how much it means to me to, uh, to know that I've got people like you at my back. So thank you very, very much indeed to all the people supporting me uh, financially or otherwise. It's, uh, it is very, very humbling, a great privilege, privilege to, to have people, uh, you know, be such big fans of the show. Anyway. That's enough of that nonsense for this week, uh, leaving you, as ever, with a question posed on Reddit. We've got Reddit historian T. Earl Grey Hot 1701 um, We've talked a little bit about uh, cons, famous cons throughout the ages. Of course, none more famous than the, the various pyramid schemes that we've had uh, over the years. And T. Earl Grey Hot 1701 wants to know, how did ancient Egyptian civilization last so long if it was based on a pyramid scheme? <laughs>